Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the podcast for Ibrahim Islamic Center. Our center is located in Houston, Texas. Ibrahim Islamic Center provides the space to connect people through fellowship, learning, spiritual cultivation, rooted in love and service. This is an essential value and a thread that runs throughout all of our programming and talks. To learn more, please visit us online at ibrahimcenter.org and to donate you can visit ibrahimcenter.org forward slash give i pray that you find value in this talk or presentation to follow and please keep us in your prayers assalamu alaikum okay Mm. Okay. And of his signs is that he created you from dust. Then suddenly you were human beings dispersing throughout the earth. And of his signs is that he created for you from yourselves mates that you may find tranquility in, in them. And he placed between you affection and mercy. Indeed, in that are signs for a people who give thought. And of his signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth and the diversity of your languages and your colors. Indeed, in that are signs for those of knowledge. Sadaqallahu al-Azim, Allah speaks the truth. Surah Rum, Ayah 20 to 22. Assalamu alaikum, it's good to see you all here. My name is Jahara Ferguson and I have the privilege of welcoming you all to Ibrahim Islamic Center's anniversary event celebrating 10 years of love and service. So the mission statement of Ibrahim Islamic Center is to provide a space to connect people through fellowship, learning, and spiritual cultivation rooted in love and service. Tonight, we are not only celebrating the establishment of this beautiful community rooted in faith, we are also celebrating a rich tradition of scholarship established by African Muslims and their descendants. I'm excited to introduce to you, but beyond Bilal, the legacy of African Islamic scholarship. Tonight, we will explore the deep-rooted relationship between Islam and black history. We are fortunate to have with us Imam Khalis and Ustad Mustafa Briggs, who I will introduce in just a moment. But first, I would like to share a little bit more about myself and my connection to the Ibrahim Islamic Center. My journey to the Ibrahim Islamic Center began four years ago when I moved to Houston from Atlanta to attend graduate school at Rice University. I had only visited Houston once before as an undergraduate on a visit to Rice. I was excited and nervous to be in this new city. Leaving home was not a new experience for me. Although I had attended Spelman College in my hometown of Atlanta for undergrad, much of my college experience was also spent studying languages abroad in countries as far as China and Oman. However, this time was different. I felt a lingering sense of permanence about my move to Houston. I had committed to spending the next six years of my life in a city where I knew no one. I felt a sense of urgency to find my community. 
Serendipity is what comes to mind when I think of how I connect it with the community at the Ibrahim Islamic Center. Just a, a few weeks after I moved, I bumped into Omar Merchant at the ISNA convention. We connected and he invited me to a brunch with his friends the next weekend. It was there that I met Tamika and Malika, two gems who became a formative part of my experience in the Houston community and my entry into IIC. Pretty soon, I was getting texts from Malika about upcoming events, rides from Tamika to attend Friday Juma, and phone calls just to check in and see how I was doing. I had found my community. As a doctoral student of sociology, one thing I've learned is the importance of connection. As people, we need human connection for a healthy, holistic existence. The quality of our connections helps determine the quality of our families, our sense of our own identity, and our institutions. I am so thankful to have built quality connections with people like Omar, Imam Khalis, Shadisa, Sara, Malika, Tamika, Brother Mukhtar, Sister Sakina, and more through the Ibrahim Islamic Center. For me, the quality of these connections speak volumes about the quality of this institution. I now have the unique honor of introducing our guest for tonight. Khalis Rashad is the Imam of the Ibrahim Islamic Center. His current studies with his teachers consist of theology, jurisprudence, and spirituality. Imam Khalis's teaching style focuses on empowering others to engage the Islamic tradition and apply it in their lives in a practical way. Imam Khalis maintains an active role in community outreach. He often leads the Friday talks and conducts classes and workshops on Islam, the social sciences, finance, and entrepreneurship. Imam Khalis is an accountant by day and an imam by night. He is a native of Houston, Texas, and fun fact, he taught martial arts, boxing, and kickboxing for several years. Imam Khalis loves serving the community. He also enjoys reading, a good conversation, and of course, coffee. Ustad Mustafa Briggs is a graduate of Arabic and International Relations from the University of Westminster, whose dissertation focused on Arabic literature and literacy in West Africa. Ustad Mustafa started an MA in translation at SOAS, University of London, with a specialization in Arabic and Islamic texts before going on to Al-Azhar University in Cairo, Egypt, where he is currently doing another degree in Islamic studies in Arabic. Mustafa rose to international acclaim for his Beyond Bilal Black History and Islam lecture series, which saw him explore and uncover the deep-rooted relationship between Islam and black history and the legacy of contemporary African Islamic scholarship and its role in international relations of the Muslim world, as well as the vital role of female scholarship and the role that it plays in the West African Islamic tradition, which he presented at over 30 universities across three continents, including Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, and Yale. Usad Mustafa has been featured on international media, such as Al Jazeera and Islam Channel, to discuss themes such as Islamic history and blackness in Islam, and is currently working on a forthcoming translation of the traditional West African Islamic texts. Please join me in welcoming Imam Khalis and Ustad Mustafa Briggs. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammad 
wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in with Allah's name the beneficent the merciful we ask Allah to send the the prayers the peace the highest exaltations upon Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam his family his companions I greet you beloved brothers and sisters with the universal greetings of peace assalamu alaikum warahmatullah um, welcome to our program um, alhamdulillah 10 years went by uh, very very fast in my uh, opinion thank you sister johara for the uh, the introduction um, it's always a blessing to be reminded of the impact that um, the community has on people. And um, alhamdulillah, it was always our goal from the beginning to have intentional community. Um, you know, sometimes you come in, there are people out the door, sometimes you come in and you know, we have a lot of room. Um, we've never really, really concerned ourselves with those things uh, over the years. Um, more than anything, um, well, what we find is, unfortunately, many of our communities are s simply transactional in nature. And I say, unfortunately, uh, and I don't say that lightly. Um, and what I mean by transactional, versus or uh, compared to being intentional. And I'm not trying to blow our horn. We still have um, you know, work to do. We still have our shortcomings. Um, but I, I think we have somewhat of an, uh, a blessing, a blessed advantage, simply because we try to be intentional and we try to be authentic and be true to who we, who we are and to believe as ourselves. Um, alhamdulillah, another blessed advantage that we have is that we have diversity. Um, you know, we have people, let's just take dress. We have people that, you know, dress uh, traditional. Uh, we have people that dress more Western style. Um, we have people that are of different madahib different spiritual paths, um, of course, different socioeconomic backgrounds. And alhamdulillah, we have been able to make it work and we see that as a blessed advantage. Um, we see and we have experienced many communities where when you go come in the door, they sort of, the, 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 the economic, the socioeconomic privilege just sort of just blows you out, right? Or, um, and there's nothing wrong with uh, a, a level of socioeconomic privilege, um, but it's what you do with it and how you make others feel. Um, there, there are communities where um, the, the, the scholarship and the leadership, um, they have so much light, a nur, quote unquote, where their nur actually blinds people and it pushes people away. Um, and, and alhamdulillah, I think what we've been able to do is just to simply believe. And that was one of the reasons why we started, because so many, play, it, 10 years ago, um, you know, Houston 
well, alhamdulillah, have, have made some good strides and some good changes. Um, but many, uh, many of us, we were simply just pushed out or wasn't appreciated or simply wasn't at the table. Um, I wasn't even invited to the table um, and, and many things. And um, our narrative, our experience wasn't centered properly. Um, and um, I've always sort of been the person that um, I, don't, I don't like begging to be at people's table. Um, I, I would rather just build the table myself and invite everyone. And I think what that does is that allows us to walk taller and with much more dignity and to be able to, again, put our table up against anyone's, anyone, anyone else's table and uh, be, be a community of light, love, service. And I think that would be the centripetal force that actually pulls people in, make people want to come and to experience um, what it is that we are experiencing. And admittedly so, um, you know, I see it's not for everybody. People come and they, don't, they can't vibe with it. They can't really, really get with it. And, and that's fine. Um, you know, to lakum dinukum waliyakum. And so I just wanted to sort of um, start with that, uh, I guess, a little convo or rant or tangent. Um, and um, just to ask you, uh, to continue to pray for us. Um, there have been many, there have been some times where, um, you know, we've sort of um, thought about, okay, is this, should we continue to continue this? Um, and as long as we can keep saying yes to that question, inshallah, uh, we hope to continue to be around and um, respecting our teachers, our, um, our sisters, our elders, um, and our youth, inshallah. So continue to pray for us and, um, and, and, and welcome. Um, so this particular conversation uh, between Ustad Mustafa and I um, is, um, we wanna, of course, drill into the, really everything that we're saying is coming from uh, the book. And for those who are uh, concerned about Isha, inshallah, the plan is to make Isha around 9.15, 9.20 or so. We're still in the ikhtiar time of, uh, of Isha, inshallah. Um, but also, uh, Ustad Mustafa will have uh, books out for sale and to sign um, after the program, inshallah, as well. And so what we want to talk about then, being that this is uh, Black History Month, African American History Month, um, I think this is a conversation that is um, uh, very much uh, important, is very in, in, uh, in line with the theme of the month. And when we talk about uh, African Islamic scholarship, some may think, okay, well, these people are just, just sort of ranting and uh, want to uh, make everything about race. Okay, and so whenever uh, sort of, you know, we, we've seen it whenever black folk get together and, and, and attempt to speak about their narrative and, and, and uplift uh, African Islamic scholarship, um, it's always, oh, they're, they're, they're racist or they're, or they're speaking about race, racism. But when they're not talking about it, 
somehow uh, that isn't prejudice, racism, a bias, or whatever. And so um, I think what this uh, book brings out, as well as the lecture series that the book came out of, is um, <clears throat> as, we go, as, we, as we kind of talk about certain points in the book, and the way we'll do this, of course, is a conversation. And I have uh, questions for Ustad um, Mustafa, inshallah, he would drill into those questions. And everything is, 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 is from the book or from work that you, that you so, so I don't think you'll, um, uh, you'll be uh, caught up or caught off guard off of, uh, from any questions. But uh, from the, uh, the, the first question is, why, why the title, Beyond Bilal? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wa salatu wa salamu ala ashraf al-anbiya wa al-mursaleen. Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi haqqa qadrihi wa miqdarihi al-azim. Alhamdulillah, it's a pleasure to be with you all here today in this amazing, mashallah, masjid. In my travels in the United States for the past I would say four years. I've been hosted and invited to many masajid, but there's something, mashallah, extremely special about this place that you've opened here. So I know you were saying that sometimes you have doubts as to whether to continue or not, but never ever stop because I feel as though the model of this masjid should be a model that all of the masajid in this country should, should take. If we had more centers like this and more places like this, I'm very confident that Insha'Allah, the face of Islam would change and people's interaction with Islam would change. Just the freedom and the participation that I see the women in the community have and the space that's made for them in the masjid is something that I don't see anywhere else. And any community, I remember one of my shaykh in Senegal was explaining, he said, if you look at the seerah of the Prophet wasallam, you'll see that the first person to believe in him and support him was a woman. And then a child, a young person, Sayyidina Ali, and then Abu Bakr came. He said, so the men are not the priority. If the women and the youth are there, then you know that the movement has barakah and then Allah will put his blessing in it. So the fact that this is a place where youth can feel comfortable, this is a place where women also feel comfortable and feel a part of the community and are essential in the backbone of the administration and everything that's happening. And they feel as though they have a space equal to that of the men, then that's a good sign, alhamdulillah, that Allah's barakah is with us and Allah's barakah is with you all. And never see the institution as something small because if we look at Islam in the early days, the Prophet wasallam began his mission preaching from the house of Arqam ibn Abi Arqam, who was a 17-year-old boy that had inherited this house from his father and Sayyidina Umar bin al-Khattab, when he took shahada in the sixth year of the Prophet's mission, he was the 40th person to take shahada. So the Islam that we know today that has crossed the, bound, the, the, the borders of every single country and their masajid in every single land and everywhere, there's not a time or a second on the earth where somebody is not saying, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah because of the adhan, because of the aqama, because of the salawat that are being performed by over a billion people. All of that began with a small group of less than 40 people. The Prophet's mission was in a small house for the first six years of the mission, and there were less people supporting him than they are sitting down in this room supporting us today. 
So that's a sign that anything that is small, Allah can put his barakah in it and increase it. And anything that is big, if Allah puts his barakah in it, he will establish it and sustain it. And I definitely can see that the barakah of Allah is with you all here in this, in this masjid. So may Allah increase it, inshallah. And in terms of the title of the book, I believe, um, Beyond Bilal, <laughs> because I'll give you like a, a practical example. Yesterday, um, I was invited by a friend of mine who's Yemeni. He wasn't even my friend, but he was a friend of a friend. So his friend was uh, acquainted with me in New York and has been following the Beyond Bilal presentations and was a big supporter of the book. And when I came to Dallas for about a week, um, he made sure he told his friend, make sure you host Ustaz Mustafa, make sure you host Ustaz Mustafa. So he's Yemeni, mashallah. Anyone who knows Yemenis knows that they are very hospitable, kind, and generous people. So he went out of his way to host, mashallah, a dinner for me last night, and that was my last night in Dallas. And before the dinner, they had just completed a dars. So they had their teacher come and give them a lesson. There were about 20 young men, mostly Arab origin, all Arab origin, actually. And um, me and my cousin, Max, came in. We were the only black guys in the room, alhamdulillah. And we sat down and um, so gave salams, everything. And then they brought up the topic of the book. So they were asking, you know, what are you doing here? You have the funny accent. You must be from the UK. What's, what are you doing? And I told, well, someone explained to them that I had this book, Beyond Bilal. And the, one of the attendees asked me the same question. He said, why did you call this book Beyond Bilal? And I said to him, Okay, name me five significant black Muslims in the history of Islam. And he said, okay, uh, Bilal. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was a silence. The Ustaz had some answers, and I said, no, but you're the Ustaz, you can't answer, but the students, Tell me five, just name five. And they said, you know, from the time of the Prophet, after I said, at any time period, just name me five black Muslims. Mm. And we got Bilal and Wahshi mm. from the message. Mm. And who else? We didn't even get anyone else, did we? Yeah. It, was, <laughs> it was Bilal and Wahshi. And I said, that's why I wrote this book, Beyond Bilal. Because, and then I started going into the different themes that I cover. I said, if we look at before Bilal, there are prophets named in the Qur'an that either are spoken about and indicated by the Qur'an itself or by authentic ahadith from the Prophet or by the explanation of the scholars as being black. Not just Sayyidina Luqman, but other major prophets that we can go into. I said, if we look at the time of the Prophet we have two of our major scholars, Imam Ibn Jawzi and Jalaluddin Suyuti, who both wrote books tackling anti-blackness. And in their books, they named over 130 black Sahaba. Some of them were African, some of them were black Arabs. Mm -hmm. And then not only that, but I told them a story, I said in the time of the Khalif Abu Jafar al-Mansur, who was the um, Khalif of the Abbasid, um, the Abbasid uh, Khilafah at the time, there was an opposition leader who rose and tried to cause a revolution and take the Khilafah from him. And this opposition leader was called Muhammad Nafs al-Zakiyah, but Abu Jafar al-Mansur nicknamed him Charco because of how dark he was. He took over Mecca, he, was, he took over, tried to take over Medina, 
And he wrote a letter to Abu Jafar al-Mansur. And he said, you should know that there is nobody who has tried to claim this Khilafah that is more worthy of it than I am. He said, because we are not the children of the outcasted or the rejected or those who were the enemies of the Prophet or those who were captured and enslaved. He said, we are the children of Fatima bint Amr in Jahiliyyah and the children of Fatima bint Rasul in Islam. Why did he say this? Because Fatima bint Amr was the wife of the Prophet Sassam's grandfather. She was the Prophet Sassam's grandmother and he named his daughter Fatima after her. But she was the only wife of his grandfather. His grandfather had multiple wives, but she was the only wife of his grandfather that came from the Quraysh, like him. They had two sons. One was Abdullah, the father of the Prophet and the other one was Abu Talib, the father of Sayyidina Ali. Then as we know, the Prophet had a daughter, Fatima to Zahra. He married her to Sayyidina Ali, and then they had a son, Hassan and Hussein. Hassan had a son who he named after himself, so he was called Hassan al-Muthanna, Hassan II. Hussein had a daughter called Fatima, and he named her Fatima, and he said she's the most of all of my children that resemble her grandmother, Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet So Hassan's son, Hassan, and Hussein's daughter, Fatima, got married and had Abdullah al-Kamil. Abdullah al-Kamil married the granddaughter of Abu Ubaidah bin Jarrah, who was one of the Ten Companions Promised Paradise, also from Quraysh. And, he, and, and she gave birth to this Muhammad Nasr Zakiya, who the Khalif named Chako. So even the way that we visualize the Arabs at that time, some of the Arabs, and even the relatives of the Prophet ﷺ, because if you watch the message or you watch the Omar series, you will never get the image that Sayyidina Ali was described as being the same color as Sayyidina Bilal. Or if you watch the Omar series, you would never realize that Sayyidina Omar's father, Al-Khattab, was the son of an Ethiopian woman, and his father, Nufail bin Abdul Uzza, was also the son of an Ethiopian woman, which means Omar's father was more Ethiopian than Bilal, because Bilal was only half, and Sayyidina Omar's father was, was three quarters. And the teacher was there and he confirmed all of it because he had read it in the books. It's there in Jalaluddin Suyuti's book, Tariq al-Khulafa. It's there in Tabari's book, his Tariq. And that's just those who were around the Prophet beyond Bilal, around the Prophet. And then the history of Islam in West Africa and the connections that exist between all of these different, king, different things. So that is essentially why I called the book Beyond Bilal, yeah. Right. <laughs> and um, even, uh, you know, the, the idea of uh, Bilal and why, what we know of Bilal, we still even know little of Bilal, radiallahu ta'ala. And so we ask, okay, who's Bilal? Well, the only two things that most Muslims know, unfortunately, is he was the first Muaddin and he was black and he was enslaved, mm -hmm. okay? We don't know anything like he was also the first accountant of the, uh, of the, of the Muslim community, exactly. right? Uh, he was this person whom the Prophet heard his footsteps uh, ahead of him in paradise. And all he did was something that we would consider very, very simple to be someone whose footsteps are ahead of the Prophet in, in paradise. And you know, the question is, okay, well, why did the Prophet Sallallahu uh, Alaihi Wasallam 
make Bilal the first muazzin? What sign, what, what was he trying to impress upon the community's mind of that time and for eternity that I would choose the first call to prayer? And then who was the backup? Who was the assistant muazzin um, during the prophet's time, Sussan? This is a general question to the audience. Just, just yell it out. I'll give you a hint. Yes. Abdullah Ibn. What was his condition physically? He was blind. Okay. So you got a black man who used to be a slave, and then you have a blind man. As, what does that say in terms of love and service within our community? And feel free to hop in. And no, no, to, to, I'm enjoying this. I'm, I'm, I'm laying back. And, 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 and what does that say um, about you know, our community and where we are today? There are still some members, unfortunately, here in Houston, where if a, uh, if a person of African descent ascend and uh, once you come down off the minbar, your talk will be picked apart, um, your Arabic will be picked apart, uh, your madhab will be picked apart, and everything else, unfortunately. And it's mostly by the lay people. Scholars don't, because they, usually they're going to they're gonna know better, mm. right? Oh no, okay, well that's actually Warsh that's being recited. Right? <laughs> you know, it's uh, funny. that's actually, you know. Sorry to interrupt you, it's so funny because literally just before this, I had FaceTimed uh, Butch Ware, mm -hmm. Professor Rudolph Ware, and we were talking about some things that had been happening recently on social media because he's been getting a lot of pushback for his work in um, you know, changing the narrative and his contributions to knowledge and education. And he told this exact same story as something that happened to him, that you know, he went to a masjid, he gave a khutbah, uh, after he recited the salah, and he came down, somebody said to him, oh, you know, you made a mistake in your recitation. And he said, no, 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 I was reciting in Warsh. It's a different riwayah from Hafs that you're used to. But this was even the riwayah of the people of Medina, so this was probably the riwayah that's closer to what the Prophet ﷺ would have recited than what you know. But because he, was, he wasn't Arab or he wasn't from a certain background, the man refused to accept what he was saying. So he told his teacher, Imam Fode Drame, and Imam Fode Drame said to him, you know, the problem wasn't your recitation, it was your skin color. Yeah. Um, so um, I want to read uh, something that was um, really impactful uh, to me, and hoping we can elaborate on this. Um, and so, uh, the book, it talks about many of the companions of the Prophet uh, who were uh, who were black. Um, I also like how you brought out um, many of the prophets. So we're gonna discuss Musa and his hand and yeah. things like this. Mm -hmm. And um, inshallah, if we have time, I wanna talk about Dr. Ivan Van Sertima's work, yes. um, who's a scholar that um, uh, had an a really good impact upon me before, even before uh, becoming Muslim, and uh, Leo, Leo Weiner, who mm -hmm. really he mm -hmm. got a lot of his, uh, his, his work from. Um, but 
here you, you bring out a point in uh, Jalaluddin's uh, Suyuti's uh, work, and we know uh, Imam Suyuti was the Shafi uh, Islamic scholar um, who has one of the most popular uh, tafsirs of the Quran, uh, the Jalalain. And so the paragraph before that you say, perhaps after accepting this dichotomy, the difference between, and you're talking about light-skinned white Arabs versus darker-skinned Arabs, and this concept of abyad, mm -hmm. and uh, you know how many people see abyad is meaning white, mm -hmm. the way we see white today mm -hmm. as well. So we're gonna, inshallah, but you say perhaps after accepting this dichotomy, the difference between the Anthony Quinn-like historic Arabs of people's imaginations and the melanated Arabs of reality. The following hadith become easier to understand. It is reported by Jalaluddin al-Suyuti that the Prophet said in a dream, I saw myself following a herd of black sheep. Then a group of white sheep came and mixed with the black sheep until they, the white sheep, became so many that the black sheep could no longer be seen in the herd. Abu Bakr, who was renowned for his interpretation of dreams, then suggested, O Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, as for the black sheep, they are the Arabs. They will accept Islam and become many. The white sheep are the non-Arabs. They will accept Islam and become so many that the Arabs would not be noticed among them. The Prophet ﷺ then confirmed that an angel had interpreted the dream the same way. Can you elaborate on, on that in the context? <laughs> yeah, so essentially I was going back to what I was speaking about just now and the fact that many of the Prophet ﷺ's relatives, we know the Prophet ﷺ himself had the description that he was abiyad, he was white or he was light-skinned, however they want to translate the book. And um, in one of the hadith narrated in the Shama'il, it said, he was not abiyad amhaq, meaning he wasn't reddish white, meaning he wasn't extremely pale, nor was he Adam, nor was he extremely dark, but he was in the middle. But when you go to his other relatives, like Sayyidina Ali, they were described as being Adam, Shadid al-Udma, that they were extremely dark-skinned. So I brought this to think about the fact that whenever Arabs were depicted in the media, and most of us, we grew up with the image that we have of the time of the Prophet ﷺ coming from movies like The Message, where they took Caucasian actors, such as Anthony Quinn, to play Sahaba or to play members of the Quraysh. So for us, that paints a picture in our mind of how they would look, that they look similar to Caucasians when really they were much darker. I mean, the family that hosted me yesterday, they were Yemeni, they were extremely dark compared to the popular image of Arabs you'll see on NBC or in any other countries. And then when we study Islamic history, we realize that a lot of the people who we refer to today as being Arab are not actually originally Arab or the same Arabs as the Arabs in the time of the Prophet So just imagine, for example, Sham, the area that we know as Sham today, Jordan, Palestine, Syria. That was a part of the Eastern Roman Empire. When Damascus was conquered during the Khilafah of the Umayyin, 
the language spoken there was Greek as a remnant of that Eastern Roman Empire. Christianity was the major religion. The Umayyad Masjid that we know today was a former cathedral. And the people there were European origin, they were Phoenician, there were many, many different peoples. But because the Arabs had taken over the government and then administration was in Arabic and the government was run in Arabic, the education system was changed to Arabic, many of these people who were originally Phoenician, who were originally European, who were originally many other different ethnicities became Arabized. And due to their mastery of the language, they called themselves Arabs. But even if you follow, if you follow like um, Middle Eastern social media now, like I'm, I live in Egypt, there's this movement even amongst these people to go back to whatever they were before. So there's a movement in Lebanon to say, no, we're not Arab, we're Phoenician. And they're talking about that. In Egypt, they're claiming to be Pharaonic people and not Arab anymore. And there's a large movement of, but if you look at anywhere that Islamic rule spread, the Arabs were such a small amount of, small in number, that it was impossible for all of these millions of people that have been Arabized over the centuries to actually originally be Arab 100% the way that they would have been in the time of the Prophet or in the time of the Sahaba. So I feel as though it's interesting that when you have Arabized people, a lot of them coming from European or Caucasian backgrounds, and then they become Arabized. Like recently, me and my wife were in Jamaica, and we had a, we had a friend there who I had known for a couple of years, but I never knew that she was Arab because she had blonde hair and like blue eyes, and I just assumed that she was Caucasian. So one day we were talking, and she was saying, yeah, you know, us Arabs, and I said, wait, you're Arab? And she said, yeah, I'm from Philistine, I'm Philistine, et cetera, et cetera. I'm Arab. And I said, okay, that's interesting. I was like, I thought you were white. And then she said, no, but I have some, I can't remember the name of the ethnic group, Sis. I can't remember the name of the ethnic, hmm? Caesarean. She was like, no, I have Caesarean ancestry. We're Caesarean originally, and then we became Arab over time. This is common in history, and there's nothing wrong with it, but then, it's sad to see that when the standard and the, then the beauty standard and the respectability standard starts to change and shadism and colorism comes into play in a lot of these cultures, the people who would have been originally Arabs and darker skinned, if they were to come back in time, if they were to come forward in time and live amongst us today, they would probably be discriminated against by people who call themselves Arab and are not even originally Arab. So that was the kind of dichotomy that I was talking about, and I think I mentioned it in the follow-up paragraph, that it will be sad to imagine somebody like Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib coming to the 21st century and being discriminated against because of his skin color. Somebody from the family of the Prophet Sallallahu or somebody that was a Sahaba, somebody like Zaid, who was adopted by the Prophet Sallallahu and was known as the most beloved person to him, would be shunned or would be looked down upon within our own communities who claim to be part of the Ummah of Sayyidina Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You, to speak about some of the, some of the companions of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, Abu Dar al-Ghifari, uh, radiallahu an, and you mentioned him, and um, if you, you, you all recall uh, the encounter that he mm -hmm. had with Bilal, right? And 
this was the encounter where uh, he basically slurs Bilal an, and, and basically calls him, uh, oh, you son of, a, son of a black woman. Bilal have got the best of him uh, in a conversation and he throws out the insult, uh, oh, you son of a black woman. And Bilal an, goes and tells the Prophet and the Prophet, they both eventually go to the Prophet the Prophet tells Abu Dhar, uh, you still have some remnants of Jahiliyyah within you. And the story goes where uh, Abu Dhar goes to Bilal's house, lays down in his doorstep, seeking forgiveness, and Bilal, and he, and he asks Bilal to step on his head. And Bilal is like, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna you know, disrespect you like that. Um, now if it was one of us, it may, may be a different story. <laughs> but Bilal is like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that, right? His, his state is, his spiritual state is much greater than, 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 than ours. Um, and um, uh, Bilal eventually just simply taps his head uh, with, uh, with his foot. And the, the interesting thing here is that Abu Dhar himself was black. Mm. And, he, and he said this. So can you elaborate on one, Abu, uh, Abu Dhar, as you, you know, characterize him in the book, but also your, your thoughts on this, this story? I can give an example that we see within our own communities. A lot of us, even those of us who come from black backgrounds or black families, we would hear lighter skinned relatives talking badly about darker skinned relatives. Oh, don't go into the sun, you'll get too dark. Or, oh, that one there, he's very, very dark. In Gambia, like I remember one of my grandma's cousins was talking about one of my cousins. I was like, Coco, Coco, Like, oh, they're so black. And she was black too, she was darker than me. <laughs> but it just shows that internalized inferiority complex and the internalized white superiority complex that we have within a lot of our communities, which the Prophet describes as remnants of Jahiliyyah. Even within, if you look at like classical pre-Islamic poetry, etc., you see aspects of colorism, like there's the story of Antara and Abla. And Antara was dark skinned, his, his dad was a king, but his mother was an enslaved Ethiopian woman. And so he was born and he was very, very dark. And he wanted to marry his cousin Abla, who was very, very light. They're cousins, they're from the same family, but he was never allowed to marry her. And so he reacted by becoming the bravest warrior. And you know, he had a chip on his shoulder and he was always going out to do the most and show that he was the best of people and he was the most brave and he could, and he writes a lot of poetry, Diwan, a lot of it, half of it is love letters to Abla that he could never get her, etc. That's all within the same family. So it's that same remnant of Jahiliya and unfortunately, for a lot of us, we still have that remnant of Jahiliya within our own mentality and within our own communities. But what's interesting is whenever the Prophet was faced with instances like this, 
the word he used to describe it was jahiliya, ignorance. And ignorance can only be cured by knowledge. So Islam was meant to be the knowledge that would bring people away from these mentalities. And so by the Prophet ﷺ bringing us a Qur'an in which the Prophet mentioned the most in it was black or mentioned people like Sayyidina Luqman and a surah is named after him and all of these things, the knowledge of these things is supposed to take us away from those particular main mentalities. Yeah. You, know, you know, Allah says in the Qur'an that um, you know, he created you into nations and tribes, لِتَعَرَفُوا and then there are verses that say that there are signs in your, in your hues and your colors. Um, you know, one of the things that I could say about uh, foundational black Americans, i.e. African Americans, is um, this idea of colorism, um, you know, we, we, we're really able to sort of point that out and really attack that at its root. And, um, and sometimes when we see it, we see it in other uh, ethnic groups of people um, you know, I've seen it and I've heard about it within like the uh, Desi community, the Indies and the Pakistanis and not wanting to marry this person because they're, they're darker skin and, and things like that. And uh, what, what I've seen, although it was an issue, this, inter this, this, this colorism, uh, even within the black American community, uh, when I was growing up, I think over the last few decades of the last generation, uh, I am, and, and this is, has a lot to do with the black power movement, um, the, um, you know, the gaining personal self-esteem and understanding, you know, the, the whole idea that black is actually beautiful. And um, whereas historically, you know, people, okay, well, black is ugly and this, and, and so there's something about the black American culture, the black American experience specifically, the black American experience, where um, there is sort of a uh, taking the lead on uh, this, this idea of colorism. And you know, I know, I know sisters, they'll, they'll go lay in the sun just to get <laughs> more black, right? Because this, this is beautiful, I, I need more melanin, right? And so you have the whole, that, that whole movement uh, in and of itself. But Allah says in the Quran, لَقَدْ كَرَمْنَا بَانِي Adam, Right, we have certainly, we have indeed honored uh, the children uh, of, of, of Adam, right? And so everything about us is, 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 is how Allah created us, and we should honor that, honor this creation. If Allah created us with wide nose, thick lips, darker skin, lighter skin, or whatever, um, you know, that's a, that's a sort of personal that that, 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 that we we're, we're, we're given, um, and it's, it's, it's a blessing. Um, but unfortunately, you know, we, we live in a, in a, in a world um, where people make, unfortunately, uh, color the, the main issue. And this idea, this concept of white supremacy, um, I like to call our attention to a book. And the name of the book is White Supremacy. Uh, it's actually a, a series of vo volumes of books. And I think anybody that's a serious student um, should have uh, these, these books. It's by the author, the Theodore Allen. And um, I bring this up. It's, it's, you know, he, he's, he writes and speaks about uh, some of the most principled critiques of white supremacy have actually been by white people themselves. 
And um, this is not sort of the knee-jerk uh, anti-racism work thought philosophy that we kind of see today. Um, but it's a, you know, these are very, very thought-provoking, well-principled critiques of racism, of white supremacy. But Theodore Allen, in his four-volume book, and he looks at it from a historical perspective, pre-colonial times, um, of this idea of how is it that whiteness uh, became centered, okay? And, you know, I grew, I, I, I grew up in the, uh, in the Southern Christian Church, right? mm -hmm. Pentecostal, mm -hmm. okay? And it was very, very common to see, when you walk in the church, to see pictures of the prophets and to see picture of Jesus, uh, what was purported to be him, as white. And um, it was even in our, in our homes. And when we go to Sunday school, and we would flip through the little white Sunday school books, and all of the prophets were white. All of the angels are white. And everyone in the, in the heavens, the blue clouds, and there's a lily white angel, right? And you're like, okay, where do all the black people go? <laughs> so, so, so if all the white people are in heaven, then, you know, by deduction, you assume, okay, well, black people are bad, black people are ugly, black people are going to hell, okay? And so you walk in your centers of worship, everything and everyone is white, okay? And to have this concept that we have in Islam that we don't depict any of the prophets of Islam, yes, we can, yeah, we, we, we talk about their ethnicity, their race, and things like this, but there are no, there are no pictures. There's no picture of Allah, right? And what that does to the psyche and to the heart and to the soul, okay? And you, you, you talk about, and I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you got some flack no. about no. the prophets, no. how you're saying that many of them, <laughs> really? No, I haven't got any flack yet. Not yet, okay. Not yet. Maybe they wait till they read the book. <laughs> so, no, but I've been given this presentation for about three, four years. And whenever I bring it, but I expected pushback. So you, so when you, you I said it, Musa was black, brother. Stop. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> but the thing is, the way I do it, I didn't say it. Tabari did. Yes. <laughs> and Baydawi did. And Bahrawi did. And all of the classical tafsirs that we all study and the ulama that we refer to, they were the ones that said they were black. If the Prophet didn't say it. Because when I start, and I started um, with Musa, for example, as one of the prophets mentioned, I mentioned that Musa, it was narrated that he was black, that he was dark-skinned. And I say, we can find this, and I quote all of the different tafasir that say this. And all of the hadith of the prophet, وسلم, that can be found in the major hadith compilations, they're verified, they're sahih hadith, and from the seerah, where the Prophet says, I saw Musa and he was black like the people of Zut, or I saw Musa and he was black like Bani Sha'ina, who are a tribe known for their dark skin, or I saw Musa and he was Adam, Shadidul Udma, he was very, very dark skinned. The Prophet said it. And then the Mufassirin, when they come to the verse where Musa was told, Usluk yaduka fi min su, put your hand in your pocket and it will come out white. Baydawi says, Wakana Musa, no, key. 
Tabari says, وَكَانَ مُوسَى فِيمَا ذَكَرْ لَنَا Adam. Musa was according to what we know black. So Allah made him being able to change the color of his hand a miracle for him. Baydawi also says the same thing. إِنَّهُ كَانَ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامُ Adam شَدِيدُ الْعُدْمَى He was very, very dark-skinned. So for me, if you want to push back, push back on them. Yeah. I, mean, I when, just relayed the information. When I first read that, I mean, like, when I first, when I first, first read that verse, um, yeah, Musa, put your, put, your, put your hand in your chest, and he brought it out, and it was white. And then, you know, the logical question is, what color, what was, color it was it before he put his hand in, in the chest? And yeah. so some Mufassirin um, will say it, the white was actually leprosy, but there are, certain, there, there are many more uh, tafasirs yeah. that contradict that and say, no, it wasn't. In fact, there was some that say that it, it was not leprosy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's was, why Allah yeah. says without yes. any harm because it wasn't leprosy yes. but what's interesting about that is and for me my thing to highlight it was if you don't want to believe that they're black and go against the evidence that's your business but for me to even just bring about the fact that this was the opinion of classical scholars who had no vested interest in making Musa black they weren't Afrocentric Kemetic YouTube people right. who are trying to convince like, you. Black yeah, they weren't black nationalists. There was no black liberation movement. These were scholars who searched for knowledge. They searched for information. They wanted to clarify the Quran and they brought this information and it was part of traditional Islamic discourse. And if we go to the books that we study and we refer to and we take our ilm from, books of people like Imam Suyuti and books of all these amazing scholars, it's in there. So why is it that it's not being told to us? And why is it that it's not being spoken about and shared when the knowledge is there? So the agenda of covering up certain aspects of our own history, that is what I wanted to uncover. The fact that the discourse is there in the books. That it's not, you know, Mustafa Briggs sitting down in 2020 trying to make all the pro, trying to blackwash. You know, they say whitewash. Right. Trying to blackwash. <laughs> like one of the events that we did Someone said, well, you know, how will you respond to people saying you're trying to blackwash history? I said, you know, you can't blackwash something if it was already black in the first place. Maybe you're washing off the white paint that they tried to <laughs> put over it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, so people, <clears throat> when, when, you, when we are bringing up points so like uh, where, again, white history has been whitewashed, um, you know, in a lot of aspects of Islam, unfortunately, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. have been have been whitewashed. Mm -hmm. And naturally, when someone comes forth, and especially if they're you know black man like you, and trying to um, uh, bring out you know works works like this, um, you know, the, I think the natural tendency of people would be to hesitate, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to begin to try to question the scholarship. Mm -hmm. Right to question the uh, the, the the pedagogy of your ilm, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Where 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 did he study? Where did he get his where did he get his knowledge? And what 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 right does he have to say this? Mm -hmm. And then of course the other extreme would be what you know what you're saying is haram, right? What you're saying <laughs> should never be mentioned in any uh, in any uh, you know masjid or sacred place or whatever. Unfortunately, because mm -hmm. there are those who will kind of hold to their guns that. Look, I, the hadith is right here. It says that the Prophet of Islam was abyad. Mm -hmm. I never said the Prophet wasn't abyad, so that's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so, so what, are your, what are your thoughts on... Um... Um, I feel as though 
we live in an interesting time where I feel as though times are changing and things are progressing. Mm. So people are becoming, and because of the way that personally I've, I, I anticipated a lot of things when I wrote the book, I wrote it in a way where it's very, very difficult to argue against it. You just read through it and, and you realize the information. But what I found interesting like with this trip and with this book is that there have been, I wouldn't say direct pushback, but just certain things like, for example, you're meant to do an event and then the event gets canceled. Or you're, you're called to do an event and then they say, oh, you know, we have to change the marketing and then certain, in certain organizations' logos get removed or people don't want to associate mm. with what you're doing. But then at the same time, you get overwhelming support from where you never expected it. So for example, when I landed in New York and I did the initial book launch, mm. Sheikh Suhaib Webb came and moderated the book launch for me and he spoke about the themes of the book and we did like a really, really, mashallah, amazing session similar to what we're doing now. A scholar of that caliber and a scholar of that renown in this country and he has no vested interest, he's white. But he showed his support and he showed his allyship to the cause and to the knowledge and he, you know, helped put a stamp on it. And then Imam Khalid Latif did the same. I came to um, Dallas, alhamdulillah, Sheikh Mikhail Ahmed Smith did the same. And then even Sheikh Omar Suleiman, I just went to say salams. I didn't even go to organize anything. He was the one that said, you know, we support what you're doing. Come to my masjid and give the, and give and have a conversation with me. And then he posted it on his social media, etc. And he has, mashallah, a large following. So times are changing where it's like, even though some people don't want to be associated, other people are being at the front line of supporting. Because I have friends, I have people who know me personally who've never posted my book. And then I had Imam Omar Suleiman, who I've never met physically, doing the most and it's of no benefit to him to do so. He already has everything he needs. So with that, I feel as though we live in a time where not only are times changing, but Allah is also putting certain things out and changing certain narratives and preparing the Ummah for something, you know, different. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Um, you know, I think when you, when you talk about uh, the people who supported you and support the work and those who sort of, you see their, their logos being removed <laughs> from. Um, what, what I see here is, and I think like when you, when you speak to the names who, who supported you, um, they have a certain level of independence mm -hmm. that, and that's, that's the key there, mm -hmm. right? Are you really, really independent? Can you really, really stand tall and not, well, you're not so tied to a lot of bureaucracy and organizations and people that's cutting your check. And so people like concerned about all of that. Like if I bring this person here, they're gonna mess up the funding and they're gonna mess up this, this, the other, right? Um, but you know, if you believe that risk comes from Allah, mm -hmm. as and that uh, people will support and that what you're doing is, and so this is why I see people like uh, Imam Suhaib Webb, uh, Omar Suleiman, and these are, these are uh, mashallah scholars who have a, a uh, certain level of independence. They're not necessarily attached to some huge, uh, mm -hmm. huge organization. And, I, and, and, and of course, and I think they have, uh, they're, they're very principled mm -hmm. uh, people. Mm -hmm. You know, mashaAllah, may Allah, may Allah preserve them. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, um, and what, what I, another thing that I really like about the book is that it's an easy read. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not, um, um, it's not scholarly, you know, and I mean that in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's scholarship, but it's, in, but it's in, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't need like some, there's some author's work where you need like a dictionary and five encyclopedias and this, that, or the other. You know, you, you don't, you don't necessarily need that with this work. It's a very, very easy, easy read, mashallah. And you can actually get through it in probably a week or two yeah, yeah, yeah. of, uh, of consistent reading because it, it really grabs your attention, mashallah. And um, you know when you when you talk through uh, many of the you start with you know the why you're writing the book mm-hmm. uh, the importance of it and you you just begin to speak about you know many of the companions who mm-hmm. are black uh, let, let's talk about the, the Prophet uh, his wet nurse many mm-hmm. people don't know that mm-hmm. right um, so yeah it was an interesting story and just to, not to digress sh- from sh- the sh- question. Sh- but to go back to what you mentioned, and I mentioned this in the foreword that I'm somebody that comes from, I wouldn't say I come from an academic background, but I've studied at university, I have a degree, etc. And my intention when I wrote this book is, I said I did not want to make this an academic book. And I did not want to make this a book that requires you to read it with a dictionary or do all of this because I feel as though modern day academia is not about spreading knowledge and educating people. It's about keeping knowledge in an ivory tower and controlling who has access to it. And they do so in a way where, like a lot of academic works are only enjoyed by other academics. Mm -hmm. And before you can even afford to buy the university press version of the book that's $60, $70 or $200, $300 even, when you read it, you might not be able to understand half of it because of all of the terminology and all of the different things used. And it seems more of an ego-based thing than a service-based thing. And Allah is not like that. When Allah tells, revealed the Quran, He revealed it in the form of stories that people could relate to. He revealed it in the, story, in the form of parables that people could conceptualize. And He said, he did not send any prophet except with the tongue of his people. And the majority of people, especially the people who need to read the information, are not academics. Because I quote from all these academic works that the books are there. If people wanted the information, they would have read all of those books, but no one's reading those books. But people are reading this book. And that was the intention. It was to make it an easy read. It was more of, and I said in the book, I haven't written this as an academic book, but I've written it more as a letter or an epistle in the style of the scholars. Because even if we study our own scholars, a lot of their books were risalat. They were letters that they wrote, or they were small treatises that they wrote in order for people to be able to understand and benefit from the knowledge and spread the knowledge. And then when you finish Beyond Bilal, you can go to the bibliography and pick all of the academic books that I quoted from and and do further reading. That's another thing that I like about it because there, I know, uh, I know some people who have PhDs that have written books that are sort of against the grain. And the challenge that they have is there's no bibliography. There's no quoting of sources. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of throwing things out there and you still leave the person who's an imam, who's an ustad, who's a who's an alim, or and it's like, well, how can we transmit this? Mm. Or even because people, what's the source? What is the? Mm-hmm. And I've seen entire works works like this, unfortunately. But you, mashallah, um, 
you, you, you quote the sources and you have a bibliography. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get into the academic stuff, you can do that. Mm -hmm. But for now, get this simple, uh, easy read that's yeah. packed with packed with him. Yeah, because it was just about impacting as many people as I could. And that was why I felt even the presentation was popular. Because the presentation, I've delivered it in all these universities, but it was always usually at the request of the students. So the MSA would go to the university, can you bring Mustafa Briggs to bring a presentation? Then they'll contact me, they'll bring me in, I'll do the presentation. And it was, students are like 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. And a lot of them are just getting into academia, they're just getting, but when they sat through the presentation, it was easy to digest, they had all this new information. And then in their own time, they could go off and do whatever they wanted to do with the information. And so that was the, um, the intention behind the book. But the original question was? Okay, yeah, the Prophet Sassan's witness. So I spoke about her and I spoke about this interesting, so I did a video interview the other day and I said there's an interesting relationship when we look at the history of Islam and the history of the Prophet wasallam, and the connection that he has with Africa, especially African womanhood. I say, we can talk about Um Ayman Baraka, his wetness, but I said the story even really starts with Mecca itself. Because Mecca, the city that we face five times a day towards to pray, the city that we're all obliged to visit once in our lifetime, was established by an African woman, Hajar. When Sayyidina Ibrahim left her there and she discovered the well of Zamzam, and the Bani Jurhum came and they settled around her and she started giving them water and trading and they grew up and her son grew up amongst them and married into them. She was the one that founded the city. And then Ibrahim came and built the foundations, laid the foundations of the house with her son and their son after that. So Mecca, the story, starts with an African woman. And when we run in between Safa and Marwa, we're remembering her legacy running in between those two mountains, looking for Zamzam to nourish her child. If she hadn't found Zamzam and done that and made that effort, there would be no Mecca, there would be no Sayyidina Muhammad And then we see the Prophet himself similarly nurtured by an African woman, an East African woman, because his father and his mother had a servant woman named Baraka, Um Ayman, and she was Ethiopian in origin. The Prophet father passed away when his mother was still pregnant, and then when his mother had delivered the Prophet and raised him until the age of around six, she went on a journey with the Prophet and Barakah. And during that time, she passed away, and it was Barakah that took the baby back home to his family in Mecca and buried his mother. And so growing up, the mother that gave birth to him was not there to nurture him, was not there to educate him, was not there to nourish him. But this woman, this African woman was. And so he used to grow up and he would refer to her as Ummi, my mother. He would call her Ummi. And when they asked him, why are you calling her Ummi? He would say, he Ummi, Ba'da Ummi. She's my mother after my mother. And she raised him into adulthood. And it's interesting because nobody speaks about her, but she is the Sahaba that spent the most time with the Prophet because she was there from the day he was born until the day he passed away. When he became an adult and he married Sayyidah Khadija, she was there. When he had his own children, she helped raise them too. 
And then she got married, she started her own family, but she was still a companion of the Prophet before the, for the 40 years before he was sent as a prophet. Then when he is sent as a prophet, she becomes one of the first people to believe in him. The battle of the key, the, the, the hijra, she makes hijra with him. The battle of Badr, she's there providing water to the soldiers. The battle of Uhud, there's some narration, she even picks up a sword and goes into fight when she sees that the Muslim army is losing. And she continues and continues to support the Prophet ﷺ until he breathes his last breath. And Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Omar would visit her and they would reminisce about the Prophet ﷺ and cry and speak about him. Abu Bakr and Omar, we know their position in Islam, but she was the person that they would visit to remind them of the Prophet ﷺ. A pillar and a foundation of the Prophet's life, a pillar and a foundation of the deen, and always the foundations and the cornerstones are always forgotten about. The same way when we see the, the Kaaba, we don't think of Sayyidina Hajar. It's the same way when we speak about the Prophet and Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Sayyidina Umar, we don't think about Barakah. But this was aiming to bring that narrative back and change that narrative. Um. My last question, and then inshallah, I want to open it up for questions uh, from, uh, from the audience, inshallah. Um, you, we, you speak about, uh, uh, you mentioned Dr. Ivan Van Sertema, Leo Wiener. Uh, Dr. Ivan Van Sertema was one of the initial uh, books that, you know, when I became a Muslim, when I converted to Islam, um, there was always this, you know, the thing about Muslim converts is, uh, in my experience, many, many years, moons ago, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but even people who are converting today, um, they convert uh, in many ways because they want to know the religion. There's research, there's study. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily just, just always an, an emotional uh, attachment mm -hmm. uh, that sort of yeah, you do have people who kind of give out shahadas like used car salesmen, right? But for the most part, uh, when I encounter many converts to, to, to Islam, such as myself, um, there was research, there was study, not only about the deen, but also particularly, you know, African-American Muslims coming, learning more and more about uh, history. And particularly, uh, the, I'm going to call it the African Renaissance mm -hmm. and African Islamic scholarship. And mm -hmm. we begin to read people like Sheikh Anta Diop, right, Jay Rogers, um, Ivan Van Sertema, and, 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 and works like this that were really counter to the, the, the most popular narratives. Like the only thing in Africa is just jungles and savage people, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you, you, you mentioned. Uh, speaking about they came before Columbus, like how the Muslims were here before him. Mm -hmm. In case, hundreds of years mm -hmm. before him. Can you elaborate on Alhamdulillah. So, yeah. Chapter four, um, the first section of it is called They Came Before Columbus in honor of uh, Ivan Van Sertima's work. And let me, can I read it for you guys? Yeah. I'll read the, just to make it, easier for me to remember what I said. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I say, 
Aha, let me find the page. Aha. So I say, immediately after the success of Beyond Bilal, in which I covered the subjects discussed in the first three chapters, my next lecture series was Before Malcolm X, The History of Islam in the Americas, which has been renamed in this book, Black Muslims in the Americas, as the history of Islam in the Americas is inseparable from the history of black people's presence in the Western Hemisphere and an essential piece in the tapestry of black history in Islam. Islam is the most widely practiced religion in the United States after Christianity and Judaism. And whilst American Muslims are very diverse, African-American Muslims make up 25% of the Muslim population and therefore the largest plurality. However, when speaking about the history of Islam in America, many people equate the spread of Islam amongst African-Americans with the rise of the Nation of Islam and key figures of the civil rights movement such as Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, both of whom are commonly tokenized in conversations regarding American Islam. Since my conversion to Islam in 2007, Growing up in the United Kingdom, lectures about Malcolm X were always Islamic organizations' go-to event for Black History Month. And the lack of creativity alone was insulting, let alone the unsavory truth that most of these events played into diversity quota shenanigans and attempts to secure government funding. That was like a specific attack, forgive me. <laughs> but. Marrying a third-generation African-American Muslim in 2018, in the crowd over there, and um, going on my first USA tour with Beyond Bilal in 2019 led me to discover much more about the black Muslim history in the Americas. I realized that the history of Islam in the Americas ran far deeper than the shallow image we're usually presented, with the timeline spanning hundreds of, ye hundreds of years and millions of lost faces. With a timeline spanning hundreds of years and millions of lost faces. All of these truths I felt were essential to learn, and so I committed myself to educating generations new and old about the stories of brave Afri black African men and women who pioneered the practice and spread of Islam in the Americas. And then I come to, they came before Columbus. When giving my presentation, as with Beyond Bilal, before delving into the details, I asked the audience how long they suspect Islam has been in America. Because you all have Imam Khalis here, I don't need to ask you that question, as I'm sure you already have a good answer. Usually, I, I, I wait for the, you know, the bad answers, and then I change the narrative. What I say, I usually get a variety of answers, the furthest of which usually reach back to the 1600s and the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade. I then show an illustration of Mansa Musa from the Catalan Atlas and ask if anyone is familiar with the artifact and what connection the 14th century emperor of Mali of the Mali Empire might have had with American Islam. Some of you know, some of you don't. Put your hand up if you know the connection. Okay. So if we refer back to Al-Umari's account of Mansa Musa's interview with the Emir of Cairo in 1326, which I quoted in the previous um, chapter speaking about the West African uh, Islamic empires, he recounts an interesting tale concerning how he succeeded his brother, Mansa Abu Bakr, to the Malian throne. So Mansa in the Mandinka language means king, and it was a title, it wasn't a name. So Mansa Musa's name was just Musa, and his older brother, Mansa Abu Bakr, was actually the emperor of the Mali Empire in the early 1300s. And so Mansa Musa narrated to the Emir of Cairo, and then this is written down, it's one of the first uh, interviews in history, yeah? The ruler who preceded me did not believe that it was impossible to reach the extremity of the ocean that encircles the earth, meaning the Atlantic Ocean. And so he wanted to reach the end. 
and he equipped 200 boats full of men and many others full of gold, water, and provisions sufficient enough for several years. He ordered the chief admiral not to return until they had reached the extremity of the ocean or if they had exhausted the provisions and the water. They set out, their absence extended over a long period, and at last only one boat returned. He then ordered 2,000 boats to be equipped for him and his men, and 1,000 more for water and provisions. So this is 2,000 boats full of African Muslims and 1,000 boats full of water and provisions. And then he conferred on me the regency during his absence and departed with his men on this ocean trip, never to return or give a sign of life. From this, we can gather that in the early 1300s, 2,000 boats full of West African Muslims set across the Atlantic never to return. So the question is, did they reach the other side or not? And if they did, does any evidence of this triumph remain? If they did in fact reach the other side, that would mean that the first Muslims to set foot on the shores of the Americas were in fact free West African Muslims, having done so nearly 200 years before Columbus's discovery of the Americas. Over the years, many people have conducted research and put forth arguments that the fleet of Mansa Abu Bakr had reached the Americas before Columbus, such as Ivan Van Sertima, who authored the aptly titled They Came Before Columbus in 1976. However, one of the first books written in support of this idea was by Professor Leo Weiner of Harvard University in 1920, who stated in his Africa and the Discovery of, the America, of America, the accumulated evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of an introduction of the articles under discussion from Africa by Negro traders decades earlier than 1492. So he brought in all the evidence of different artifacts found in the Americas that he was sure came from West Africa. Unfortunately, certain archaeologists insist on, upon denying all but the archaeological evidence and shower upon an objective investigator a veritable deluge of abuse. So he, as a university professor in Harvard, was saying that, you know, my contemporaries and my peers don't want me to say this information and they're abusing me for bringing this to light. But he firmly believed this was the truth. And so there are several locations from which Negro traders spread into the two Americas before Columbus. And so I bring in all of the different evidence, evidence that comes from people who accompanied Columbus talking about the fact that they discovered boats from West Africa, that the native um, tribes told them about black people with golden spears who lived near them and used to fight with them. And not only Columbus meant, but many of the other conquistadors. And then, you know, I end the report by saying, actually, I'll, I'll let you guys see it in the book, inshallah. <laughs> and um, another point uh, that uh, Ivan Van Sertima points out is, uh, you know, you go to uh, South America and you see the Olmec heads mm -hmm. and how these South Americans literally worship black people, right? And they will construct these huge uh, heads with very, very thick lips and wide noses and and you know, it was one of the, and then of course he speaks about the plant life and vegetable life and uh, certain fruits and things that were actually found uh, in, in West Africa. Mm -hmm. So we want to open it up, uh, inshallah, for, uh, for questions. Uh, we'll start with the sisters, uh, take, a, take a couple of questions here, and then we'll move to the residents and try to come back for the next 15 minutes or so, inshallah. Do you want to pass the mic to us? Oh, you got one. Okay, no Any sisters have questions? Any questions? Do you have a question, Shrew? <laughs> 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 
Chief Questioner, Jeroen Questioner. Assalamualaikum. for being here. This was a very enlightening. Like I can't wait to get my hands on the book. Um, in truth, I did not. I wasn't going to pose this question. So, whoever said my name, you're right. I did have a question, but I just wasn't going to pose it. Um, but on second thought, now that I have the mic, um, so Those are earlier. The best questions. Sorry? I said those are always the best questions, the ones that you're not sure if you should ask them or not. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just hope I can answer it. Oh, gosh, the pressure is on. It's because it's just a very simple question. Mm. Um, so you had mentioned that in the Prophet's time, the word for, um, or my question is, so you had mentioned that this idea of like racism really was called uh, the people being like jahil. It was, you know, jahiliya, so ignorance. Um, so was there, I think I remember vaguely hearing years ago that there was no term, there was no, the, the term racism as a word does not exist in the Arabic language. And instead, it's the idea of people who are racist. And I know it came later, you know, um, it's simply because they're ignorant. But could you just, I guess, elaborate more on um, yeah, I mean, this idea? It goes into like the study of postmodernism and like modern day constructs, but race itself is a modern construct. And so racism as we know it today didn't really exist in the time of the Prophet just because people didn't divide people into races the same way we divide people into races today. So I was on Facebook scrolling and you know, Facebook is a crazy place, but people love to, you know, debate each other in the comments. And there was a friend of mine who posted something about black Arabs, etc. Something about Ahmed bin Hanbal being black. Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal being black. And then there was an Imam from South Africa who commented and said, yeah, but no, 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 no. This isn't accurate. He wasn't black, he was Arab. <laughs> and then the person responded and said, no, but okay, he was Arab. We know, we're not saying he wasn't Arab, but he was also black. And I said, no, but you know, if you say the black race, then you're talking about Africans. And he wasn't African, he was Arab, so we need to clarify. And they were just having like a back and forth debate. Are Sudanese people black or are they Arabs? As if it's mutually exclusive. All of these kind of different, co I wasn't gonna comment because I didn't, yeah, I was on tour, I didn't have time. <laughs> or energy for it. But it shows two different mindsets. One mindset is speaking about color, is, color and race from the time before the concepts of modern day race existed. And it was also the areas. So for somebody of an Asian background growing up in South Africa, when you say someone's black, that means something completely different from, a dark, from somebody who grew up in the Arab world knowing different things. I remember, for example, funny, funny story. I'm gonna put my wife on the spot. Not my wife, but her family, her, yeah, not my wife, but she'll know. So my wife's sister came to stay with us. And my wife is mixed. Her father's African-American. Her mother is um, Mexican origin. And so she's light-skinned, her sister's light-skinned. I'm black, right? We're all in the house and her sister says to me, What's the fuck like? You can't, we were talking about something. He's like, what's the fuck? You can't even talk about that. You ain't black. And I was like, <laughs> are you are you okay? I'm not black. And she said, no, no, no. She said, I'm black. She said, you're African. It's different. Uh, yeah. And I'm looking at her thinking, 
in Egypt here, they think you're Arab. They don't. They never think I'm Arab. If they do, they think I'm Sudanese. But in my head, growing up in the UK, I've always been black. I've never been anything other than black. But for her, being black was a completely different thing from me being African, even though it's the same thing. So it's like all these concepts of race and it's what period are we looking at it from and what's the context of the people who are living it at that time? Because the same way someone that's mixed can say they're black and I'm not, doesn't make sense to me. But to her, it made complete sense because of the context of what it means to be black in America. To be black in America means to be descended from enslaved Africans who came and were brought to this country by force. You lived, or your ancestors lived, or you have grandparents that lived under Jim Crow. You have grandparents that experienced segregation. You have grandparents that worked on, or great-grandparents or ancestors that worked on plantations. And me as an African who possibly did not come from that, according to her conception, I'm not black because I don't have the black American experience. I'm African because Africans only started coming to, free Africans only started coming recently and they're completely different. But to an Arab, we're all the same. Or to an Asian person, we're all the same. Or to a white person, we're all the same. So even this whole concept of race, it's like race can mean so many different things for different people. And so that's why I make it a point to always talk about, for me, I don't care about concepts and theories of race, but for me, it's more about colorism. Because regardless of race, there's no culture and there's no country and there's no language that doesn't have derogatory terms for darker skinned people. So even if we don't agree on race, we can all agree that anti-blackness in whatever form it is, is a global phenomenon and it's a global problem. And so when I say black history in Islam, it's not about trying to make the Sahaba African or make people fit into these boxes that we've recently created, but it's about talking about skin color, talking about complexion, talking about how people conceive lightness and darkness and how that affects their interaction with people. Yeah. And when you, when you asked that question, I thought about two statements from the Prophet One is how he spoke about this concept of asabiya, tribalism, and how, um, how destructive it could be to one's iman and to, to, to your deen. And this is one tribe over, over another and putting yourself uh, in a sense of superiority because of your tribe. Um, and then the statement he made in his final servant, uh, sermon, uh, there's no superiority of an Arab over non-Arab, a non-Arab of an Arab. There's no superiority of a black over white and, and vice versa, right? Like, you know, again, there's no superiority, and yes, you could have black Arabs, you could have uh, Arabs that are more, 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 more light-skinned, but there's no, there's no uh, superiority. So, good question. Next question. Oh, what happened uh, there? Jahar. similar question but more on the lines of colorism mm -hmm. um, and that is because so I work in sociology and I do a lot of contemporary studies of black people blackness um, Africans etc <laughs> um, and a lot of the current um, theories around race and anti-black racism right is thinking about how racism really kind of started in what you mentioned, this period of modernity, right, in, in European colonialism. Mm -hmm. But when we think about the pre-colonial era, right, 
I'm wondering, like, was there anything that you found in your research about, like, what was the origin of this anti-blackness, right? Or this, like, colorism that existed, even when you see, like, stories about, like, oh, you're the, why would that even be an insult, right? You son mm -hmm. of a black woman. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering, like, was there anything that you found about that? Yeah, so that's something that I'm even still researching myself. Because growing up, you always, or we always have this tendency to blame everything on the white man, or blame everything on colonization, or blame everything on the West. When really, this colorism and all of this existed before the West was even established. And it's something that's deep within a lot of cultures, a lot of traditions, a lot of histories. Um, but in terms of the origins, I can't even trace it back. I'm still, yeah, I'm still researching. That's still one of my questions that I'm, I'm looking into. Jahara, have you ever, uh, there's a book, uh, I'm forgetting the author's name right now, but I see it on my bookshelf. It's called Race and Color in Islam. And um, does anybody know what the, the author is right up here? Bernard Lewis. Bernard Lewis, yes. And so, um, and he sort of traces the history of, you know, this, uh, that's a good study in, in terms of anti-blackness uh, within Islam, so. And what's interesting as well that somebody um, brought up in conversation that I was thinking about was with regards to um, Bilal's specific situation and him being the son of an Ethiopian woman, if we study the history of the interaction between the Arabian Peninsula and East Africa, there is this xenophobia and there is this kind of thing that occurs because the Ethiopians were a colonizing force in the Arabian Peninsula. They, they took over the South and they ruled the South. They colonized the Arabs that lived there in the South and they placed, for example, Abraha was a general, an Ethiopian general that was in charge of Southern Arabia and then he tried to demolish the Kaaba. So there was still that anti-Ethiopian sentiment amongst certain people, but it wasn't from a thing of they're inferior to us, it was a thing of they invaded us and they have colonized us the same way we feel about certain people ourselves. So that's also another interesting perspective because we usually look at Africa being the victims of colonization and not Africa as the colonizers. I um, also would recommend or, or any, any Muslim uh, that's in uh, the social sciences, uh, but also those of us who are teachers uh, within Islam, um, the Muqaddimah uh, the mm -hmm. um, is a very, very important sociological uh, work of study. So. Um, Assalamualaikum. Assalamualaikum. Nadia, how are you? Welcome I'm home. So one of the, um, since I'm in the healthcare field, and one of the ways I always talk to families is 99.9% .9 of our genome is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And so when we try to say, like, this is not, this is a black illness, this is a white illness, or this is South Asian, it's like, well, 99.9% .9 of us are the same. And so much of it is also our environment, right? And it comes down to, like, obesity or some of the other new like conditions we're discovering that's increasing has a lot to do with our environment. And I think that kind of when I was thinking about talking about the blackness and the racism, a lot of it has to do with the way our environment is. Mm -hmm. And really 99.9% .9 of our genome is all the same. And mm -hmm. I think that just to think of it in a different scientific way, um, we're all very similar and just we are affected by who we are. Mm -hmm. so that's just a comment. <laughs> 
And yeah, and it's an interesting thing to look at the fact that a lot of the issues that we face are not naturally occurring issues, they're engineered. So even when you speak about diseases and you speak about, for example, diet, if we look at certain demographics and the kind of food that they have access to and the healthcare that they have access to and the situations or the areas that they live in or the things, so for example, one of the signs of gentrification is you see Whole Foods in your neighborhood or you see Trader Joe's in your neighborhood. Whereas before, when it was just a certain demographic living there, you only see fast food joints, you only see liquor stores, you only see etc. So a lot of it then is engineered because a few of these, a lot of these diseases that we see, maybe black people or Asian people etc. having here in America due to their socioeconomic position that they've been forced into, would they have those same things if they were living naturally back home in Africa or in Asia? So that is also, yeah, a lot of it, as you said, is the society and the environment. And who controls the society and the environment and puts people in those positions is an important um, question to ask as well. Yeah, I think um, for here in Houston, maybe a lot of the uh, places in the US, um, even before Whole Foods come, it's the, um, the, the, the hippie coffee shop and yoga <laughs> pants. You know, that's when you kind of know that you know, uh, things are going to uh, be coming to get uh, gentrified. Mm. Um, the, the, the point, um, I, know, I forgot the, uh, my reply to, to Nadia. Uh, maybe she'll have to come back, uh, but any brothers have? This brother here. I have a question. Okay, go ahead. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum, salam So, I, yesterday or earlier today, you were mentioning the, the concept of lack of uh, being able to trace your lineage mm -hmm. and how important that was for your sense of identity mm -hmm. and being able to uh, go back to the Gambia. Mm -hmm. um, how important or how do you uh, recommend people cultivate that sense of understanding of where they come from and trace that back to a sense of you know, pride in who they are here in, in America where we may not have the ability to, to go back as often? Mm. It depends on what kind of background you come from, but I feel as though with both backgrounds in terms of either you knowing that your parents immigrated from a particular place to here or knowing that your ancestors were taken by force and brought to here, one story is about tracing the story of those who survived all of the horrific things that were imposed upon them in the transatlantic slave trade. And what's interesting is when we look at uh, Surah Qasas, we see Allah talk about how Pharaoh dealt with Bani Israel. And they were in Egypt the exact same time or the exact same amount of time now, if we're talking about it, as African-American people have been here for a 100-year period, from the time of Sayyidina Yusuf to the time of Sayyidina Musa. But what's interesting is Allah uses the Pharaonic system and he says, he, they killed their men and let the women live, and they oppressed them. He said, but what Allah wanted to do was, he said, Allah wanted to raise those that had been oppressed and make them leaders and make them the inheritors. Malcolm X is a complete example of that. Honorable Elijah Muhammad is a complete example of that. Muhammad Ali is a complete example of that. If we just think about, for example, the autobiography of Malcolm X and how many people have been led to Islam through that, 
how many people have been influenced by that. There's not an imam or a scholar that I meet who's a convert. Most of the time, they converted through reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. Imam Saheb Webb is one of them. And Professor Rudolph Webb is one of them. Imam Khalis is one of them. Even I, at one stage, was one of them. Like, I read the book before I took Shahada, and it kind of helped me in my journey. That, so the, 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 the issue that a lot of African-Americans have where they say, well, you know, we can't trace our ancestry all the way back. Even if you can trace it back three or four generations, there's stories of amazing people in those three or four generations. Someone that can survive Jim Crow is someone whose story needs to be honored and remembered. Someone that can survive slavery, someone that can survive all of those horrors and be from amongst those people that Allah says he wants to make inheritors and he wants to make leaders. And if we look at the influence that African-American culture has, not just on this continent, but globally, like you can go to Iran and Malcolm X is on stamps in Iran, that shows you something really amazing. So honoring your legacy and your lineage, just because you can't trace it all the way back to the 12th century or the 13th century, doesn't mean that it's not worthy of being traced and it's not worthy of being um, honored. Because even the smallest of people, you know, there's a, there's a, I mentioned the story of one Sahaba in this, in this book that the Prophet was sitting in the masjid one day and he said, a man is going to enter this masjid that is one of the 40 people through whom Allah sustains the earth. Mm. Meaning if, this, if these 40 people didn't exist worshiping Allah, Allah would destroy creation. And it's because of them that rain is sent down. It's because of them that punishment is avoided. It's because of them that all of these things are happening on a global scale. So the Sahaba are waiting for this man to come in to see who it could be. And it was the old Ethiopian man with a bucket of water on his head who used to clean the masjid. In the eyes of the people, he might have been someone small and insignificant, but in the eyes of Allah, he was one of the 40 people, including the Prophet <laughs> through whom he is maintaining creation. We call them Mahlu Nazrullah fi khalqihi, the people that Allah is looking at in his creation. So there's no lineage and there's no ancestry that's too small. We can't all be descended from kings and emperors and all of this, but even that one story that you have of your great-grandmother or your great-grandfather, you don't know who that person is in the sight of Allah. But then also as well, contact your parents, contact your grandparents, keep information, ask them questions, do research. Alhamdulillah, here we have records you can trace back as far as you can. And um, yeah, I know Imam Khalid yeah. was there. Go ahead. No, um, there are a lot of people don't, that don't understand why African-Americans are, um, it's so important to trace our lineage back. And every African-American in this room feel exactly what I'm saying and what I'm about to say. Because most people in this room of other cultures and ethnic, ethnic you know, you can trace your lineage back all the way to Islamic scholarship very, very easily. And so for me, when I, you know, traced my DNA. It was, it, something happened internally. I felt it in my, like, this is, and, and, and teachers said, this is where you're from. This mm -hmm. is where your people are from, this and other. So, and then, um, yes, some black nationalists and Afrocentric, they sort of get it wrong, but we understand what their intentions are. Mm -hmm. Lineage is so important in Islam. Mm -hmm. And to break someone's lineage, and so that's one of the first things colonialism did, right? What do you do to a slave? And, and, and 
American chattel slavery was different than any other form of slavery or servanthood in, 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 in history. Why? You enslave the person, you take his culture. What is culture? His language, his name. Your name is no longer Abdurrahman, your name is Toby. Okay? Take his, his language. Your language is no, no longer Fusha. It is this broken English or whatever, right? Uh, you take, he doesn't know who his father is. You, 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 you uh, interbreed them like, like animals, mess up the lineage. This is completely haram in Islam. It's, it's, it's a part of the five maqasids, mm -hmm. the protection of lineage. And so when we see you know, black Americans that are obsessed we're tracing our culture and being proud of, of when we find ourselves. Be patient. We are a people who just got our humanity mm. in the 1950s in this country. In the 60s. Mm. That's less than 50 years, 55 years ago. Be patient. Yes, there is still a lot of problems and challenges. That's why Islam is the answer. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I see a sister back here. Oh, a few sisters. Uh, we can, sorry, can I oh, get this? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you, oh, I'm sorry. There was a few brothers, and then we'll go. You've been skipped over like three times. I got oh, you, bro. Sorry. Don't worry. <laughs> so I can, ask me a good question, then. Uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, so we all have, you know, something else that you know we need to improve on, and things like that. So everybody has, you know, you know, colorism and their cultures and things like that. Um, and I understand that's on a layperson level. On a scholarly level, was there a point in time that it changed where they were trying to hide information like this? Or is this just more of people, just common people taking you know, the prophets and a lot? We don't have images. So they just kind of project themselves in it. Is that, is it, the scholarship kind of hide it in a sense? I wouldn't say the scholarship hide it, but I would say they don't make it a priority to teach people whereas certain scholars did. So for example, Jalaluddin Suyuti and Ibn Jawzi, um, I can't remember which of the ones it was, but they mentioned in the introduction to their book that the reason why they wrote, they, they wrote the book was because they saw or they met with a group of East African Muslims who were depressed about their skin color because they were facing racism, they were facing all of these things within the society and they were made to, be, they were made to feel less than because of their skin color. And a lot of the times, this can come from the scholarship itself, which is the sad thing. So, like I've studied traditionally, there's certain tr traditional texts where you see anti-blackness in the text. You see a scholar saying things that are clearly racist, and because of the honor that we're meant to give tradition, you are now thinking to yourself, wait, does that mean that the tradition or the religion is anti-black because people conflate fiqh and sharia with Allah. So if you are reading a fiqh book and they've told you this is the fiqh book and this is how Allah, and you're seeing in there anti-black statements, you're seeing in there, oh, the dowry of a black woman is less than that of someone that's not black, or you're seeing, oh, you don't have to, all of these things can mess with your self-image. And that comes from the scholarship. It doesn't come from the layperson. So other scholars like Imam Jalaluddin Suyuti and Ibn Jawzi were fighting back against things like that. 
So I feel like, um, yeah, there are no images and it's not the popular narrative, but even within the scholarship, people were allowing, because knowledge isn't just the information, knowledge should be the adab and the akhlaq and all of these things. But a lot of the time, unfortunately, people can memorize Quran, people can study, but they don't have that inner purification. And so they're still dealing with their own issues and their use, but because they have knowledge and they've been placed on a pedestal, that causes detriment that affects communities for hundreds of years and affects people who come into contact with their works and see these problematic things and have to deal with them and deal with their own self-image based on how they've taken Islamic scholarship. So, yeah. Um, this here in the Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa Brother, I'm very happy today you are lecture. Mm-hmm. I've written an article 20 years ago, the same, about Ethiopia mm-hmm. in the United Arab Emirates. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Yemen in that area, it used to be a lot of, lot of uh, black people. Mm-hmm. For example, historically black, Kush is black. Mm-hmm. Punt is black, mm-hmm. Egypt is black, mm-hmm. Ethiopia is black, mm-hmm. the whole continent. Mm-hmm. So 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, people used to call Habasha, Habush. Mm-hmm. And those people, black Habush, used to live the whole, even include Iran. Mm-hmm. People don't know. You know, like they have Habush Quraysh, Habush mm-hmm. Sham, Yemen. For example, people think the Arabic language Arabic language belongs to the black people. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go, what the Arab language they speak, like Saudi Arabia, they speak language Jiz, Jiz, from Jizan. Mm-hmm. Today, those people, the Habasha, Tigray, all Ethiopia, they speak, you know, that Saudi, what they call Jiz, it's Ethiopian language. Mm-hmm. And uh, the same things like uh, in Yemen, if you go back, they used to have a different language, mm-hmm. like Saba, Saba. Mm-hmm. I think you know, speak that language, was not Arabic. Mm-hmm. So, all the books written, all of them in Egypt, in Arabic. Mm-hmm. I came here because health-wise, you know, and uh, my degree is just business. Mm-hmm. So I went to read a book from Sheikh, Sheikh was talking about women, black women, mm-hmm. you know, leaders and so and so. Super interesting for me, you know, black women, I think today we have to have a leader of black women. Mm-hmm. You got Balqis, for example, Arab they say she's, she's white. They call white Balqis, you know, history of Balqis. She's, in the Bible, they call, she's a black. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? The black. So all those in Arabic books, people don't know, like if you go to, you know, in Arabic, you will see, you know, like you said, what is his name, Antar ibn Shaddad. Antar ibn Shaddad, was, was black. His father was just light skin, mm-hmm. because at that time, also, they used to kill black people. They used to hate, just like today. Discrimination, it was there. You know what happened to him? They refused him to give him Abla, his cousin, from his uncle, because he's black. You know, he's, he's a scholar. Mm-hmm. He's a poet. Mm-hmm. He was a strong man. Mm-hmm. He was a leader, mm-hmm. you know? Not only that, I can give you another one. I, uh, what is his name? Ziad, Ziad, want to conquer Spain? Yeah, yeah. Tariq Ziad. Uh-huh. Take Tariq Ziad. 
People don't know Tarabnia. Tarabnia is black too. Mm-hmm. You know, he's from Barbar. You know, because what he did, he conquered the whole Europe until everywhere. So at the end, because Sham used to live, uh, white people came from Turkey, that time European, they hated him. They said, come here. Do you know how he died? He died boy in the street, mm. in the street because he was black. So many of them is still in the play now. In the books, they don't like you to know. And Islam, like for example, some people fear about black because this is, this is, they don't like us we to become, we are one family. Do you know where we come from? We're Bantu. 60% black people in Africa are Bantu. When you take Hausa or Somali or Sudani or Egypt, or the, those little mix, they got Semitic people. They still mix with black too. The mother is Bantu, you know? So that's why they differ. Even West Africa today, Yoruba, where they came from, from Makkah, they're Arab. All these Senegalese people, all Gambia people, we don't know. Mm-hmm. The Arab people, Arab language from Sayyidina Adam. The third person said, as a child, Sayyidina Idris, Enoch. He was in Cairo teaching knowledge that came from. Anyway, I'm very, I'm very happy. Yeah, so, so we want to we want to get um, two of our elders. I need a copy of your article. And then we, we have to stop for uh, so we can make it share. Inshallah, we want to respect people's time. We want to uh, make it share, and we want to eat as well. Um, but uh, Ustad uh, Mustafa will certainly be available at the table, answering questions and sure. signing books. Inshallah. Um, let, let me get a sister first, and then we'll come back to you. Yes, uh, my sister, my beloved sister. Go ahead. Can, can someone give her the mic or? Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. I like the way you said that we should trace our lineage, and I think that it's, I'm an advocate of this. It's very, very important that we teach our children. You have to start teaching your children about their lineage. And you have to, um, I'm an elder and I, I'm sitting with some of my elders here and, um, and I know <laughs> that, <laughs> that um, we need to write the stories. You need to write the stories of the elders who became Muslims, who converted to Muslims. Why did they become a Muslim? Mm-hmm. You need to pass it on to your kids and you know, people, pass all the time, but the elders are more likely to pass before others, I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's good to write those stories. Mm-hmm. And teach your children. I, I teach this at another masjid, and I, for one of our Black History Month programs that we did, I made the uh, little buttons for them, and they, it said, I am Black History. Teach them that you're, you're a part of Black History. Mm-hmm. Black History, um, Islamic History, and, and America is Black History, and you're a part of this. Teach them to be, you know, really knowing and having a place in Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, the sister here, and then we'll go to. Uh, well, since, no. since the mic is back here, I'll just throw this <laughs> quick question. Sorry about that. Okay. But I, <laughs> now I'm I'm taking my elder privilege. Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> 
All right, thank you. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Okay, I just wanted to, to just kind of throw a general question out there. And I think it's safe to uh, assume that all of us who are here who are descendants of Africa and some of us who have actually the uh, African-American ex experience, it's safe to assume that we all know why it is important for us to know this information that we are discussing tonight. So my question is, can you elaborate on why is it important for those people who are not of African descent uh, why is it important for them to know this? And what does society gain by having them know this? Mm -hmm. I would say as Muslims, it's because it's the command of Allah. Allah tells us in the Quran that he made us into different peoples and nations in order for us to know each other. He said, And as Imam mentioned earlier, the word ta'arrafu itself is not just about information. It's experiential knowledge. It's mixing with people. It's becoming familiar with people. And Allah created these differences within us in order for us to acknowledge these differences and to engage with them. That is the initial command. And then I would say on a more societal level, because number one, if we study the history, and I mentioned some of the history here in this book, as Muslims, the fact that we are even free to practice Islam on this continent is due to the sacrifice of African-American Muslims and people who came out of the African-American experience. To pay homage, I mean, me and my cousin were talking about this in, 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 in one of the areas that we were in, where the first masjid in that area was a masjid that came out of the Nation of Islam. And then under Imam Warahdin Muhammad, it transitioned into, and that's the oldest masjid in the area. But it's a masjid that's struggling financially and needs support. Whereas just 20 minutes drive or 30 minutes drive, there are all these new masjid with bas basketball courts and $8 million masjid when there's the original masjid that was the first masjid in the area struggling to even pay their bills. To see that, you need to understand that even when the laws were changed, for people to be able to immigrate into this country and establish masajid and establish businesses, it was due to the changes in the law that came about due to the civil rights movement. And all of these things, the privilege that we enjoy as Muslims here and all of these things are due to those pioneers and those ancestors. So in order to pay homage, firstly to the command of Allah and then secondly to our actual historical reality in this country specifically, and then to also understand the conditions of our brothers and sisters. Allah has made us brothers and sisters, siblings in Islam. He said that, you know, in Al-Mu'minuna Ikhwa, that he's made all of the believers a single family. If you take that command of Allah seriously and that indication of Allah seriously, the way that you interact with your siblings is understanding them, understanding how they are, the way they are, why they are, the way they are, what they've been through, and then how you can do, what you can do to further support them and also what you can do to benefit from them. So I feel as though that is um, the most important aspect. And I feel as though everybody here would probably understand that, which is why they chose to come here and sit through this lecture and engage in this topic and engage with Imam and engage with myself and support the book. Because 
people genuinely want to know, people genuinely want to understand, and people genuinely want to educate themselves from a place of love and from a place of um, mutual understanding. So yeah, I have, I have a good opinion of everyone, and, I, and, I, and I'm sure that that's the, the reason and the cause. So I have a rhetorical question. Um, why, what rhetorical question, because I'm going to answer it, but why did the Immigration Act in the 60s happen one or two years after the Civil Rights Act? And what did that act do? What did that act do to knock back additional rights of black Americans in this country. That's a study in and of itself. And mashallah, our brothers and sisters came over as immigrants and set up masajids, Allah blessed them for their struggles, set up stores, set up shops where there was easier money. Because you wasn't gonna shut up, set up a shop in River Oaks. You had to go to the hood for an inconvenience store, <laughs> okay? And all the monies and all the profits and the thing, the resources that were pulled out of the community, pull the resources out of the community, build massages. Pull, pull the resources out of the inner city community, correction, build massages with it. Send our children to the best schools and colleges. Make them doctors, engineers, attorneys, business people, and so on and so on. MashaAllah, Tabarakallah. Immigration Act of 1965, 66, whatever the, I mean, getting the years off there. But that's a study in and of itself. Assalamu alaikum. My question is for Ustad um, Mustafa, how do you address anti-blackness with African elders? And have you ever thought about tracing the origins of language? Because I know you talked about your, I think your grandmother's cousin that was talk, referencing a black person. Mm -hmm. I too similarly have a Nigerian grandmother. <laughs> and in the, I'm sure you know in the, in the Yoruba language, there are terms for black people and terms for white people. And mm -hmm. I just recently found out the term for white, oimbo, means honey, but akata means bird. So like, why is that? And I wonder if you came across that in your studies and mm. if you think it's even worth addressing with the elders, like, you know, Grandma, you should, probably shouldn't be saying that. <laughs> um, or you think it's like, let's just move yeah. on with this generation. You know, my, yeah, my, <laughs> so I remember, this is like back in the day, my grandmother, because um, I was the only child, so my grandma would take me around all her friends. So if I'm in Gambia with her, I'll be chilling with just all old people. So I was in my head thinking I was grown and thinking I was older than I actually was. But I'd listen to their conversations and interact. And there was one day, there was like an argument that happened. My, my grandma's friend, his name was Dr. Fal. He was like a wealthy kind of doctor. He had like a really nice house and he used to host like dinner parties, etc. And he had different kind of people that would come from all different strands of life. So he grew up, he went to a Quranic school, a traditional Quranic school. He comes from a Wolof family. But then he went and he studied abroad and he had like, you know, he has his hospital, so he has European friends, he has all different kind of friends. And so he had this Swedish couple there and then they were arguing with one of my grandma's friends about something and whatever. And then me and Dr. Fah were just on the sidelines watching the argument. And then he reached over to me, he was like, you know what, let me tell you something. 
and then I was like, what? He's like, you see these old people arguing? And he was the same age as them, but he was just looking through. He's like, you see these old people arguing? I said, yeah. He said, once the branch bends, you can't straighten it. Not to give up on the previous generations, but it's like when people reach a certain age and they've lived their whole lives with a certain mentality, it's nearly impossible to change them. And at that time, they've done everything they've done in life where even if you did change them, it would just be for your own sentimental value, but it wouldn't be to change society. It's just because you feel like, oh, this is my grandma, I love her, I would want her to think in a different way, rather than thinking about the wider picture of, before I take this book and try and educate a previous generation that has no further impact on the world, let me educate the future generation so that they won't raise children that grew up in the same situation I did, where they would have to face these things. Or I will be the elder that was conscious enough for the next generation to not put them through the certain things that I went through when I was a child. So that's always been my focus. That's why like, when I wrote the presentation and I was, do I was doing it in universities, because university students are coming into the world they're gonna be filling the job spaces, they're gonna be creating the new things, they're gonna be doing for the future because the past is already gone and I don't know if I can change that or if we can fight against whatever's already happened. But whatever's going to happen is always in the hands of the future generations. So if you look at, for example, the Arab world and the Arab Spring, six, seven presidents were taken down from their position because of young people on Twitter it was Twitter, an app created by young people, being used by young people to cause all of these riots, to cause all of these protests, to have all of this thing that shook the entire Middle East. And governments were changed. Things were changed. Even if we look at the business world, Imam Khalid is an entrepreneur, so he can tell you, Uber completely changed the taxi industry. Facebook completely changed media and advertising, every government in the world and every president has a Facebook page now or has an Instagram page now. Every country has an official Instagram from an app created by college students. Airbnb completely changed the hotel industry, an app created by young people. So it's like, if you focus on the young people, the young people will have to change, will change the world anyway because the world will always adapt to what they want. So it's about doing the research, like you said, researching the language, researching all of these things, and then moving forward in your generation and the generations to come. And Allah can even use them to change the previous generation, the same way a 20-year-old on Twitter could take down a 40-year president. Um, we're gonna, uh, Sidi Mukhtar will be the last one, and we have to make it shout out. <laughs> Just blame it on me, I'm so old. <laughs> Now I have to be short. <laughs> well, thank you, brother. Uh, I've seen you on uh, social media before. Alhamdulillah. And I saw you walking the streets of Cowlack and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought you were African American. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I've always wanted to meet you. Uh, so I will make a short. Originally, my question was about Asabiya mm -hmm. and, uh, and how uh, <clears throat> whenever an African-American talk about his nationalism, black nationalism, and let's remember Malcolm X, when he came back from Mecca, 
he was Sunni Muslim, but he still said I'm a black nationalist. He was talking, mm -hmm. you know, black nationalism. So I think it's a total misconception about uh, nationalism. And in Arabic, uh, I think asabiya can be translated to nationalism. Mm -hmm. Some people call it racism. But I do notice that, you know, <clears throat> to me, whenever uh, scholar, even scholars in Islam, the Muslims, uh, <clears throat> When it comes to African Americans and talk about their nationalism, oh brother, that's Asabiya, that's against Islam, you know, it's haram. You know, but then you go to their communities, their masjids, it's all about nationalism. And it never come up that it's, you know, they don't use, even use the term Asabiya to refer to what they're doing, which is exactly the same things African Americans are trying to do. Uh, so this double standard to me, um, emanates from basically white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, do you, uh, do you think that Asabi, oh, before, I, before I say that, there's a hadith that uh, Amir Mukmini Ali ibn Abi Talib, who said, was asked a question, you know, Amir uh, Mukmini, what is Asabiya? You know, and he said that you know, it's, it's all right for a person to love his people, to love his nation, to be a nationalist, basically. And, and it's nothing wrong with that. See, what Asabiya is, is when you help your people and you love them to do wrong, mm -hmm. to hurt other people. Mm -hmm. And you support them in, 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 in something that's wrong. So I think that's a good definition. But <clears throat> my question is, do you think this this uh, nationalism and, and Asabiya, when it comes to African Americans and black people, uh, you know, is it justified? Is it is it okay Islamically, or or are the other side who are condemning it? Just where where's the truth on on Asabiya? I would say, specifically in the African American context, not only is it justified or allowed, it's obligatory. And I'll explain why. The Prophet وسلم, before he was sent as a prophet, and this is a part of the Sira that a lot of people don't speak about, he was part of a youth organization called Hilful Fudur, which means the Pact of Virtue. And the reason why this came about was because somebody had come into Mecca to trade. And they had come into a trade agreement with somebody from Mecca and the time, the way it worked is, the tribes controlled everything. If you're part of a powerful tribe, you have people backing you. If you're not from a tribe, you don't have anyone behind you. So this person was not attached to any tribe. And so he came in, he had this deal with somebody, business deal, he was meant to give them goods and then they were meant to pay him. The person took his goods and never paid him. So he came out to the streets of Mecca, he said, this person took my money, they took my goods and they haven't paid me for what they owe me. And the Quraysh, the youth of the Quraysh, were angry because they felt as though the honor of their town has been disrespected by some of the people in their town who were oppressing others. So they decided, some of the youth from some of the most prominent tribes, to form what they called Hilful Fudul. It was a pact of virtue where they said, anyone who doesn't have support will support them. Anyone who doesn't have a tribe, we will be their tribe. And anyone who's wronged or oppressed, we will aim to give them back the rights that were taken from them. 
And the Prophet ﷺ was a part of this youth organization. So anyone that had a problem in Mecca and they didn't have a tribe to support them, they'll come to Hilful Fudul. Hilful Fudul would come and sort out their problem. Later, the Prophet ﷺ, in the time where he sent as a prophet, he narrates this to his Sahaba. And he said, Wallahi, if I was called to join that organization now after Islam has revealed, I would do it. He said, if I was called to be part of this organization, to give rights back to the people that their rights were taken from them, to help those who have been oppressed, to help those who have been put in a lower position, I would join them. And he was saying that to encourage them to do the same. Because if there's something that the Prophet said he would do himself, that means it's a sunnah. That means it's obligatory upon us if we truly take the words of Allah seriously when he said لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا That we have a good example in the Prophet So when we look at black nationalism or black liberation movements or all of these things, it's not about trying to raise black people above everybody else. It's not about trying to say black people are better than everybody else. But it's about trying to bring that equity and that equality between all races because clearly the need for black nationalism is because black people have been put at a disadvantage by society. So as a Muslim, we should be supporting that. And as people who call themselves Muslims, they're betraying the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ by not supporting that. Alhamdulillah. So we're going to go ahead and, and close out. And um, I wouldn't put Malika on the spot for uh, closing du'a. Uh, so. Allah, thank you for gathering us this evening. Thank you for giving us all this new knowledge and insight so that we can come together to continue to know one another. Allah. Forgive us. Forgive us for what we do not know and help us to turn to you with every breath, with every conscious thought, with everything that we do. Make us close to you so that we can help our, our, ourselves and the next generation. Oh, oh. Thank you for 10 years of Ibrahim Islamic Center. Alhamdulillah, thank you so much, Allah, for this space so that we can continue and to get to know one another and to bring people that will teach us about our our hidden knowledge. Allah, protect us from all this confusion that is going on. Protect our youth. Protect ourselves. Protect our youth. Ya Allah, protect our youth. With the intention of healing, with the intention of companionship, with the intention of Honoring you, Allah, we're going to recite Zora Fatiha together. Thank you.